Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, April 25th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, I am here with our friend Truthvids, addressing Charles Weissman's What About the Seedline Doctrine? And this is part 11. I've titled it Gnostic Heresies for various reasons, but mostly because it's Charles Weissman accusing us of being Gnostics. And I will let Truthvids discuss that. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here. Hey, Bill. It. Hey, Bill, it's great to be back. Yeah, he's he's using the uh, – well, first off, I'd, if he was still alive, I'd like to ask him what he classifies as a Gnostic. It's very bizarre that he thinks we're being the Gnostics. He seems to be using the typical Jewish tactic of always going on the offense, putting us on the defense and accusing us of everything they're guilty of. You know how they love to call us evil racists. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with caring about your race, but it's them who are always trying to exterminate us. So, you know, the, the term false accuser certainly fits here and with them, right? Well, well right, absolutely. I, I mean, it's called projection. The Jews are masters at projection, at, at um, creating propaganda, which puts an image upon their enemies that they themselves should have. Like the um, the accusations against German soldiers in, in the First World War, that they were throwing babies in the air and catching them on bayonets, things like that. that the um, accusations of torture at the concentration camps in National Socialist Germany and, and the extermination camps, which never existed. None of that ever existed. They had brothels and commissaries and orchestras and swimming pools. And, and Auschwitz was a work camp that looked like a resort. <laughs> it looked like it, it, it was a, a, a vacation resort, aside from being a work camp. So it, it was a prison, but it, it was um, evidently a lot more comfortable than the typical American prison is today. So that's the Jews are masters of projection, and Weissman is projecting upon us things that he's actually doing. And, and I hope that we make that evident today. In our yeah, last, absolutely. In our last discussion addressing Charles Weissman's What About the Seedline Doctrine, which was part 10 of this series, we discussed the nature of Cain and how it is that when he was challenged by God to do good, but then immediately went out and killed his brother, that also serves to prove the circumstances of his birth, that he could not do good because sin lieth at the door. We also discussed how and why both Cain and Abel were making sacrifices in the first place since Cain's rejected sacrifice was the catalyst for his having been challenged and having killed Abel. Weissman imagined that Yahweh was offering Cain acceptance, but that is not the case at all. Yahweh, being God, certainly knew that Cain was going to fail. 
His challenge to Cain and Cain's failure are not an exercise in vanity on the part of God, but rather they serve as a lesson to us that a bastard will always do evil in the end. The fact that Abel was even making a sacrifice to Yahweh after Cain had done so also serves to illustrate the reasons for Cain's disqualification once it is examined within the context of later scriptures and statements made by the apostles concerning the patriarchs Enoch and Noah. By the act of making a sacrifice, Abel was asserting his own claim as rightful successor to his father. And I pray we elucidated that sufficiently last week. Following that, Weissman began to address the statements which Christ had made to his adversaries in John chapter 8. And he cited verses 41 through 44 of the chapter. Doing that, he made the assertion that in those words of Christ, the word father does not really mean father. But if he had cited more of the passage, the overall context would have proven Weissman to be wrong. In fact, even the part he did cite proves him to be wrong, as the Jews themselves certainly did understand Christ to have been speaking about their ancestry, where they answered him in verse 41, that we be not born of fornication, we have one father, even God. Of course, they were wrong because they were Edomites, something which is also established in the overall context. But if the Jews understood the word father to be literal, and Christ answered along those same lines, how does Weissman claim that the word father is not literal, but only figurative? He, he's actually making a claim which is absolutely contrary to the text. Christ went on to answer the Jews by saying, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. He did come from God, and the Gospel of Luke makes it a point to prove that in the genealogy of Christ, by giving his line of descent and informing us that Adam was a son of God, if the Jews are of Esau, and it is historically demonstrable that they were, then in spite of what they believed, they were bastards. And being bastards, they are not true children of Abraham or God. That is the overall context of that discussion in John chapter 8. And Weissman insists it is all about belief while the passage itself proves that it is all about the circumstances of birth and one's true origin. As we also pointed out, later in John chapter 10, I'm adversaries, but you believe not because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Saying that, he was referring back to the same conversation where once again, we see that he was speaking about race and not about mere belief or profession. The reason they did not believe him, according to Christ himself, 
is because they were not his people in the first place. Again, proving that they must have been Edomites, as the writings of Flavius Josephus and Paul of Tarsus also helped to prove, along with the prophecies of Ezekiel and Malachi, which we had also cited last week when we began this part of his book. When the words of Christ are accepted in the context in which they are given, making perfect sense in conjunction with scripture and history, only someone with another agenda would insist that they should be interpreted allegorically. In reference to the covenants of God, for example, if we insist that father, seed, children, and even the word tribes are allegorical rather than literal, then the word of God has no meaning, and the promises to the fathers, which Christ had come to confirm, are meaningless. So men attempt to nullify the word of God by their insistence that certain terms are allegorical rather than literal. It is perfectly... Yeah, so he's, he's the one being the Gnostic, right? Yeah, right. As we uh, keep saying, he's the one who keeps spiritualizing. And, um, you know, if you realize that the Jews have always had this evil nature and you can break through, you know, their lies that they've always been victims and you align it all, then you can see everything Christ says is true and the apostles as well. And and the fact that the Jews have have displayed those same behavior patterns over many, many generations it 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 shows that it's genetic. The problem is genetic, that these things are inherent in their character, and there must be a reason why they have acted and behaved in this same pattern for all these many generations. I, I mean, Kevin McDonald attributes this to some psychosis and what he calls groupthink. But that's simply not true. You don't learn through psychology to act in this manner. I, I mean, look at the, um, the Irish in the inner cities in America in the 19th century. The Irish were oppressed. They were economically oppressed by the English. There were actually signs on shops here in America no Irish need apply because they wouldn't even hire the, the English and, and shopkeepers wouldn't even hire Irishmen to work in their shops. So they suffered all sorts of discrimination, much worse than the Negroes. But the Irish managed to um, first to assimilate and not develop any particular identity of oppression. They didn't develop that. They assimilated into the wider American culture that the English and that was already mostly um, English and German, especially in the North. And, and they assimilated into that culture to a great degree. And, and they got themselves um, jobs and vocations where they could work themselves out of the cities and, and into um, a better economic class, if, if I have to put it in those terms, a better economic state and become self-sustaining 
And they did that in the 19th and early 20th centuries without any of the welfare programs that the Negro has has enjoyed the benefits of. Now, that doesn't mean there are no whites on welfare, but the Negroes collectively have not been able to get out of the inner cities. They moved into the inner cities in, in the North in the 1950s, and, and for the most part, and rather than help build those cities like the Irish did and maintain them, the Negroes, when the Negroes moved in, they destroyed them. They destroyed the cities. They cried and whined that they didn't have anything because they were poor. It was a whole separate um, pattern of behavior than the Irish and other groups like the Poles and, and the Italians exhibited before them. So we could easily see that there is something inherent in the Negro character, that it, it's the, um, the Negro himself who has an inability to come out of poverty and, and the cycle of crime without um, massive welfare payments and free education and equal opportunity and, and even um, employment preferences. The Negro needs all these things to get ahead. And, and the dumbing down of the education system so that the Negro can get a degree. The Negro needs all these things to get ahead. The Irish did it without any of those things. And, and the Irish was, in, in early America, yeah. the Irishman was every bit as oppressed as the Negroes were in the 1940s and 50s, for, for instance, under Jim Crow. And, and Jim Crow was probably the best thing that had ever happened to a Negro down south. But they can't um, – it, 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 what I'm trying to say is that the Jew has acted in a certain behavioral pattern because it's inherent in his character. A lot of people in, in Christian identity or a lot of people, period, can notice this problem when it's Negroes, when it's niggers, when it's black and white. But the Jew has acted in a particular – manner over 80 generations because that's his inherent nature just like the negro has that a, a, a similar um it's inherent nature that doesn't change because after you take the negro and and give him all these advantages he's still a criminal he's still susceptible to um random acts of violence and violent outbursts and cries of being oppressed, even when he's a $6 million a year athlete, he's still the same Negro or the same nigger. He's still the same. The Jew is the same way. Whether the Jew is an oppressed minority or a minority that controls your nation, they still act the same way. So Kevin McDonald's yeah, and it's. It's crazy how fast they do it. Just five, ten years, they'll bring an, an entire town down. Right. But, but what I'm saying is that Kevin McDonald's group psychology concept doesn't hold up when it's examined and, and compared to the, these different groups in history that have been oppressed at one time or another. They all act differently. They don't develop the same psychology and the same patterns of behavior when they're oppressed. They all react differently to their oppression, and they all react differently 
when they are elevated out of oppression and given preferences. So, so yeah, I, and I, then I think j- that, just lastly, and you also never get a white society where you get homosexuality and transgenderism and all that stuff popping up. It's typically a Jewish thing. Yes, absolutely. When 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 um when America was an exclusively white society, if there was any homosexuality, it was kept deep in the closet. It wasn't right out in the open the way the Jews the, the way the Jews have it. I mean, there have been homosexual whites, but they would be outcasts in in a white Christian society where now in a society that that um is basically controlled and influenced by the jews through their media and pop culture homosexuality has become a a noble it's seen as a noble character and and sodomites are basically being worshipped in in society today and being elevated and, and upheld as special people and and that's the Jew, the work of the Jew also. But what I'm trying to say is this: that this um, Kevin McDonald theory about the Jews being the way they are because they were oppressed is just a, it, it's worthless. The Jews aren't the way they are because they were oppressed. They didn't develop this groupthink because they were oppressed. They developed this groupthink because it's their inherent nature to operate with one another as a crime ring as a crime syndicate. And, and that's what they do, feeding off of the other populations, where the Negro, it's his inherent nature to be a lazy, um, unintelligent dolt and, and to cry and whine that he, he wants your stuff because if he could, he would rob it all and, and kill you and, and consume it. And, and that's the Negro's inherent character. So the, the white inherent character is exhibited in those um, impoverished Irishmen who came over here and contributed to the greater society in spite of the obstacles and, and, and became self-sufficient and supported themselves in spite of the obstacles so, or, or suffered in poverty quietly without constantly whining that they wanted other men another man's money. I, I mean, that there is still Scotch-Irish in, in West Virginia today in poverty. Probably a, a lot more whites are in poverty today in America than there are Negroes. And that's true, if, if you actually look at the statistics. But the whites don't always complain that they want, 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 want from Washington or, or from other taxpayers or, or from the rich. Until recently, when we had this... Um, Marxist ideology, which our younger generations have been imbued with in, in the last 30, 40 years. So I'm, I'm just trying to pull apart this idea that this is um, this behavior pattern is psychological, when in fact, it's an inherent characteristic that that's a result of um, racial origins. That's what it is. So maybe that was a long digression, but I, I just hope to have made the point. It is perfectly evident that many terms which are expressed in parables and in prophecies are intended to be understood allegorically. 
that is obvious where Christ says things, such things that, that are um, found in places like Matthew chapter 7, where, where he said, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. That doesn't mean they really dress up like a sheep, right? Sheeps don't have clothing or they wear sheepskins, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. That doesn't mean they're really literal wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. That doesn't mean people produce literal fruit. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? That doesn't mean he expected his disciples to go into gather grapes from thorn bushes. It, it's that these things must be understood allegorically because they make no sense literally. So Christ is using allegorical imagery to express a concept or idea. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. In that passage, the references to animals and trees are really references to people of particular races. And they must be allegories because they make no sense whatsoever if they have to be interpreted literally. The same is true in the parables of the wheat and the tares or the sheep and the goat nations, which are found in Matthew's chapters, Matthew chapters 13 and, and 25. But that does not mean that the plain words of Christ should be interpreted as allegories when they make perfect sense if they are interpreted literally, and especially if there is no indication that they are allegories. As we have asserted, if the Jews themselves understood the meaning of his words in John chapter 8 in their literal sense, and he responded accordingly, then we ourselves also must accept them in their literal sense. The concept that such biblical passages must be understood allegorically. That father really doesn't mean father. Son or child do not refer to genetic descendants. And seed really does not mean offspring. That concept is very old. In the first century, it is found in Greek philosophy, and then it is found in Gnosticism, or in Philo, Philo-Judaeus, who I esteem to be a proto-Gnostic. But those worldly philosophies were rejected by early Christians and only served to corrupt the later manifestation of Roman Christianity. And, and what I'm saying is that a lot of the early church fathers were actually former Gnostics, and while they had renounced Gnosticism, they nevertheless... Um, conformed themselves and accepted a lot of Gnostic ideas and applied those ideas to Scripture. So now, by necessity, we are getting ahead of ourselves because later in this book, Weissman accuses two seed-line believers of following Gnostics and Masons and the Kabbalah and the Talmud. Now, now truth vids, I haven't read that chapter yet, but perhaps you have. And, and maybe you could add something to this. But we, we also hope to address that before this series ends. But here we're going to take a brief look at the history of allegorical interpretations of Scripture. 
And once we see that, we will see that it is Weissman who is truly the Gnostic. Yeah, he's just slinging mud at us like everything he can to smear us, to make us look bad. When, um, you know, some of this is just ridiculous, like the Kabbalah and the Talmud. Uh, but we'll get to that, right? Well, well right, we will. First, I'm going to read um, from a source I always despise but often turn to because it's, it, it's often correct. It offers some of... Um, some readily accessible and, and easy to interpret explanations of, of quite a few things, and that's Wikipedia. I'm going to read from the Wikipedia article on allegorical interpretation of the Bible. And, and there we read, allegorical interpretation of the Bible is an interpretative method, or they have exegesis in, in brackets, that assumes that the Bible has various levels of meaning and tends to focus on the spiritual sense, which includes the allegorical sense, which Weissman tried to separate the two, and I called him out for that in our last program, right? <laughs> he tried to th say they were different, which includes the allegorical sense, the moral or tropological sense, the anagogical sense, as opposed to the literal sense. And I'm not going to explain the, the minute or, or um, the differences in all of those senses, but they all fall under the um, category of spiritual sense because they are all different ways of interpreting something in a non-literal way. And Weissman is insisting that these words here, father, children, seed, in John chapter 8, in verses um, 41 through 44, can't be interpreted literally. So he's the one that, that is doing this, insisting on this allegorical interpretation of the Bible in this area. And Wikipedia goes on to say that allegorical interpretation has its origins in both Greek thought, and the rabbinical schools of Judaism. In the Middle Ages, it was used by Bible commentators of Christianity and, and in other venues, right? Let, let me state that I have already shown in relation to other aspects of medieval Christianity, such as my um, series on Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, that many of the early writers of Christian Bible commentary were, in fact, converso Jews. Namely, Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos in the 13th and 14th centuries. And that these Jews, among others, were cited as authorities by people like Martin Luther. And Martin Luther cited these two gentlemen and another one, Raymond Lull, very often in, in on the Jews and their lives. The um, Bible commentary written by Nicholas of Lyra in the 13th century was um, added to. It was interpolated in many places by Paul of Burgos in the 14th century. These men were former rabbis. Paul of Burgos was a rabbi who was who became a converso Jew in medieval Spain and was very quickly elevated to the position of bishop. 
in medieval Spain that the church loved elevating former rabbis into influential positions within the Roman Catholic Church. They did it all the time. Nicholas of Lira was a converso Jew who wrote... They see them as... He, he wrote the most influential Sorry. Bible commentary of his age. And it remained one of the most influential Bible commentaries for several centuries, especially after Paula Burgos added his own... Um, I hate to say improvements, but after Paulo Burgos had, had made append, appended his own thoughts to it. And, and they're Jewish Bible commentaries. And, and these Jewish Bible commentaries... that They see them as... Go on. Sorry. Go on. That they, the, the churches would see it as a real Israelite who's seen the light and converted to Christianity, right? Yeah, Not right. realizing yeah. it's an evil Jew. And, right. and no doubt they used their finance and backing power to position them into that position of power so that they could corrupt Christianity. Exactly. And they were seen as having a special position. Real Israelites who accepted Christ must have some um, more authoritative knowledge about Scripture. That's how it's seen. And they are evil Jews. And they did pervert the word of God at every turn. And in the, the, this ball of spaghetti that we call church doctrine today, that's anything but Christian. None of it's Christian. Secondly, as I have also demonstrated elsewhere, the early Christian church ultimately accepted what we call replacement theology. Rather than the covenant theology, <clears throat> covenant theology which was taught by the apostles. And therefore because they accepted replacement theology, they were forced into interpreting many terms allegorically rather than literally. But Weissman is supposed to have been an identity Christian and therefore a believer in covenant theology because identity Christianity is a belief in covenant theology. According to the plain language of the covenants of God, as they are repeated in both Old and New Testaments, Father must literally mean father, and seed must literally mean offspring, or the covenants are nullified. Of course, in many other ways, we can prove that the covenants are true and that the words are indeed literal. So, therefore, it is Weissman who is adopting Gnosticism and the allegorical interpretation of Scripture in his endeavor to try to disprove two seed lines. And the adoption of such a position by identity Christians nullifies any identity Christian profession. Weissman cannot have it both ways. He is either an identity Christian or he is just another universalist eating out of the hand of the second century Jews who promoted replacement theology among early Christians, which is reflected in the life and teachings of the so-called church fathers, dating back to the time of the supposedly former Platonist, Justin Martyr. And I call him a supposedly former Platonist because even though he um, became a Christian, Justin Martyr had retained a lot of Platonic thought 
and, and Platonic ideas in his Christian writing that he continued to espouse. And the supposedly former Gnostic Clement of Alexandria, who was a Gnostic that turned to Christianity, became a bishop, so figure that one out, became a bishop and had, had written um, quite profusely, but retained a lot of Gnostic ideas and concepts in his Christian profession and his Christian writing. And Clement of Alexandria had a lot of um, followers who were also um, profuse scholars and writers in their own right, Irenaeus, Origen, Eusebius of Caesarea. So these men formed the, the thoughts and, and helped form the doctrines of the early church. Perhaps not Justin. Justin was seen as a heretic, but he was seen as a heretic for other things, not for this. These men all contributed to forming the thought and, and doctrines of the early church. So just like the early Gnostics and the Roman Catholics who followed them, Weissman is insisting that father, children, and seed do not mean father, children, and seed so that he can corrupt and pervert the plain meaning of scripture. And here he is doing it to make cover for the Jews. That's who he's doing it for, to give so, them Bill, space. The, the, um, the early church fathers, they were clearly influenced by the Jews. The Jews trapped them in that belief that they are the Israelites so the only way for them to interpret Christianity would have to be the replacement theology. It's the only way it could work because they were trapped in that lie. Exactly. And um, clearly also it is very difficult for these people to forget all their previous teachings. It goes back to that Christ saying, right, the uh, old wineskin in a new bowl. Exactly. And, and if you look at Justin Motter, and, and he's the best example, I think, because Justin Motter, if, if you look at Acts chapter 20, 21, James talks to Paul about um, how many believers there were in Jerusalem, but yet those believers in Jerusalem didn't like Paul because Paul was telling these people that they had to set aside these customs of, and, and these rituals that were part of the Old Testament. So James is saying these things to Paul, that these believers in Jerusalem, they don't like you. They don't like you because you tell them to set aside the law of Moses. So Paul wrote his epistle to the Hebrews in response to that accusation. But the Judean Christians continued to reject Paul. Paul was teaching covenant, covenant theology throughout every one of his epistles. And he was sent to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. It's very clear from his own profession in Acts chapter 26. And it's very clear in every single one of his epistles that he is writing to tribes or people that had descended from the very ancient Israelites. So in Acts chapter 21, I believe, the Judeans also hated Paul for that. And a separate um, sect of Christianity grew up in Judea, which 
rejected the writings of Polytarsus, and which rejected the idea that these anciently scattered Israelites could be um, within the covenants and the same relationship that they themselves claimed to have had with God, because they kept the rituals and other um, unnecessary components of the religion of the Old Testament, the rituals, the sacrifices, the circumcision, things like that. They clung to those things, and they only stopped conducting the sacrifices for the same reasons that the Jews did, which was the destruction of the temple. So there came a form of Ebionite Christianity by the third century, which rejected the writings of Paul of Tarsus and was still very Judaic in its character. And Justin Martyr was sort of a prototype of that. He was a Samaritan. He was raised in Samarita, Samaria, and he learned his Christianity from Judean Christians who were very Judaized. And he rejected Paul. If you read his writing, he seems to have been totally ignorant of the writings of Paul. He has a few lines which are similar that, to lines found in Paul, but he's not citing Paul. They're both citing Old Testament sources. So he's completely oblivious to the covenant theology taught by Paul of Tarsus. And he accepted replacement theology. So being a Platonist and, and having these ideas that this concept that words could be interpreted allegorically when they should be accepted literally, Justin is a reflection of that. And he's a reflection of that Judaic thought and that Judaic teaching, which is replacement theology. The Gnostic... Yeah, and, and lastly, also... Um... Justin, it's really interesting because he still kind of seemed to understand that there were men and there were beasts. And after him, that all just faded into oblivion. So but he was, found in the you know, Talmud. likely the last one or but that it period. Is found in the Talmud. But you are right. Justin had a lot of correct ideas. And a lot of those correct ideas are found in the Talmud, but they're also found in the Old Testament. The Jews aren't wrong about everything. And Justin did. You're right. He's like the last vestige of that belief in Christianity, in Christian thought, because that was stamped out of Christianity by this replacement theology belief. The two ideas conflict. If you believe in replacement theology, then you have to believe that all races of men are equal and they could all become Christians. If you believe in covenant theology, you understand that these are racial covenants, that the old and new covenants are, are both made with the same people, that the descendants of Abraham and their racial covenants, and that one was just a precursor to the other. And, and when the old covenant wasn't kept by the people, that the new covenant was promised because the promises to Abraham were without condition. So that, that's the whole history of Christianity is that it's based on these racial covenants, that they're not, they're to a particular people and their descendants, that they're not for everybody. But once you accept replacement theology, which Justin Martyr accepted, then 
he's in conflict with with replacement theology thinking in thinking that certain men can be beasts. So that idea was stamped out, which Justin Motter maintained. And he knew that certain men were really beasts and devils. But that was stamped out of Christianity by the third century it was gone. So, so this once you accept replacement theology, which is based on this false idea that we're just Gentiles and, and that only the Jews are Israel, which is clearly a false idea reading the Old or New Testaments. Once you accept replacement theology, you're dead in the water and you have to take these terms, father, seed, children, allegorically. You have to you have to interpret them allegorically. And that comes straight from um, Greek philosophy and Gnosticism. And especially from, from the Gnostics, they were very influential in early Christianity. <coughs> so just like the early Gnostics and the Roman Catholics who followed them, Weissman is insisting that father, children, and seed do not mean father, children, and seed, so that he can corrupt and pervert the plain meaning of Scripture, and here he is doing that to make a cover for the Jews. And that's the same reason that after the persecution of early apostolic Christianity in the first century, because apostolic Christianity in the first century um, was practically persecuted out of existence, but the Jews couldn't stop Christianity itself. That's the same reason why we see them sow all these seeds of replacement theology in these prominent writers, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, these prominent writers who were early Christians of the second century. It was like a different brand of Christianity popped up in place of authentic Christianity. And it taught replacement theology, and boom, there you have it, the deception begins in the second century, where practically every, that they, they maintained the letters of Paul, but they twisted all the meanings to be allegorical. And while Justin Martyr was ignorant, and the Judean Christians rejected Paul of Tarsus, the Gnostics in Alexandria didn't make that mistake. They accepted Paul of Tarsus. They, they claimed to or appeared to embrace him while perverting all of his words with allegorical interpretation through Gnostic interpretation or the Gnostic um, method of interpretation. They rejected Gnosticism itself, a lot of the things it taught. Not all of it. They covered for some of it, but they rejected the basic components and claims of Gnosticism, but they accepted the methods of Gnosticism. They, as they became Christians, when they were formerly Gnostics, they kept the practices and methods of interpretation which the Gnostics had, had employed. Okay, I hope I make my points clear because it's not always um, easy and, and straightforward to explain these things. From an article at the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, found at the website of the University of Tennessee at Martin, 
which is a town in Tennessee, in a discussion of one of the later developments of Gnosticism. We're going to read about Ptolemy, not the, um, not the astronomer, that, but a Ptolemy who flourished in, and not the king of, of, of Macedonian or Macedonian Egypt, but this is a um, Ptolemy who flourished in the second century and he was a religious figure and a, and a, a writer and, and philosopher, Christian philosopher. Ptolemy, who flourished around 140 AD, was described by St. Irenaeus, the early Christian apologist. And Irenaeus was an anti-Gnostic, but he also had employed Gnostic methods of interpretation, which he got from the, the schools at Alexandria, the Christians at Alexandria. Ptolemy was described by St. Irenaeus as the blossom of Valentinus's school. We know next to nothing about his life except the two writings that have come down to us. The elaborate Valentinian philosophical myth preserved in Irenaeus and Ptolemy's epistle to Flora, preserved verbatim by St. Epiphanius. I'm sorry, Epiphanius, St. Epiphanius, a late 4th century Christian bishop of Salamis. In the former, we are met with a grand elaboration by Ptolemy of Valentinus's own system, which contains a complex anthropological myth centering around the passion of Sophia, we also find, and Sophia was the personification of wisdom, we also find in both the myth and the epistle, Ptolemy making an attempt to bring Hebrew scripture into line with Gnostic teaching and New Testament allegorization in a manner heretofore unprecedented among the Gnostics. Now, as an aside, I believe that Philo-Judaeus was a proto-Gnostic, and because the Gnostics really didn't arise until the second century, and Philo had been writing around the same time that Christ had his ministry, and Philo's primary endeavor was... So Bill to... was... I'm sorry. Sorry. Sophia was the, is that like the queen of heaven and all that garbage? Well, well, well Sophia, and then they brought it together with Mary to try and entwine them. Sophia was basically early on a reference to the personification of wisdom, which is found in the writings of King Solomon in, in the 10th century BC. It was Solomon who is the earliest surviving um, writer or author who, who had personified wisdom, but the personification of wisdom in, Solom in Solomon is a completely different Sophia than the pagan idol of the Greeks, even though I believe that the Greek personification of wisdom and um, other characteristics that men may have or that men may perceive because the Greeks had a lot of personifications like that in, in their philosophy 
and in their pagan worship. That the Greek personification of wisdom, I believe, is much older than the Greeks and came to the Greeks through the Hebrew scriptures. But Solomon personified wisdom in order to, um, as a literary vehicle, in order to teach lessons that were actually pious and, and for good purposes and godly, while the later personifications of wisdom were merely pagan. And, and I don't equate the personification of wisdom in Solomon with the quote-unquote queen of heaven of the pagans, which actually existed long before Solomon. But all of Solomon's ideas aren't original either. He drew them from an older, a, a much older Hebrew culture. And I'm sure he drew um, ideas and illusions from pagan culture as well. But he used them, he employed them for godly purposes. So I think the equation of, of Sophia as, as the um, queen of heaven, I, I mean... I think Solomon might come close to, to that parallel, but I don't think he really repeats it. He doesn't actually call wisdom the queen of heaven. He makes um, metaphors where wisdom should be perceived as our mother and God as our father, but they're literary metaphors. They, they don't he doesn't take it so far as actually um, worshiping wisdom. So it, it's, it might be considered a thin line, but it is a line. There is a line there, <laughs> no doubt. So I believe that Philo was a proto-Gnostic and that the Gnostics had drawn a lot of their ideas from Philo. I believe that. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Philo's primary endeavor seems to have been to synchronize Greek philosophy and Old Testament scripture, to, to um, syncretize them, to try to show that they were really of, of the um, similar origins or, or they were really saying a lot of the same things. He was perverting scripture into Greek philosophy is precisely what he was doing. And he was allegorizing in order to do that. And we see that's the, the, the method of the Gnostics, Ptolemy and Valentinus were doing the same thing. And they took it further than even many Gnostics before them. So continuing the same article, in his epistle to Flora, which is an attempt to convert an ordinary Christian woman to his brand of Valentinian Christianity, which came from the Gnostics, Ptolemy clearly formulates his doctrine of the relation between the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, who is merely just, and the ineffable Father, who is the supreme good. Rather than simply declaring these two gods to be unrelated, as did Marcion, Ptolemy develops a complex allegorical reading of the Hebrew scriptures in relation to the New Testament in order to establish a genealogy connecting the pleroma, which is a Greek word that means something formed, Sophia and her passion 
The demiurg, which is a Greek word for a lesser god, creator god, a, an idea of Gnosticism, and the salvific activity of Jesus Christ. In other words, the activity of Jesus Christ related to salvation. The scope and rigor of Ptolemy's work and the influence it came to exercise on emerging Christian orthodoxy qualifies him as one of the most important of early Christian theologians, both proto-orthodox and, quote-unquote, heretical. The connections between Gnosticism and Christian, quote-unquote, orthodoxy, which isn't Christian at all. It is, it, it, there's a clear line of evidence there in early church, so-called church fathers and Christian writings. And here we have a bishop, a Christian bishop of Salamis from the fourth century who preserved this epistle to Flora of Valentinus in the second century. With this, it may become evident that the Roman settlement on the so-called Trinity was perhaps an attempt to reconcile many of these diverse philosophical perspectives because it was the Gnostics that had tried to say that different gods had actually, um, there's a different god that's the ineffable father, different from the creator god that created the universe, different from the incarnate God in Jesus Christ, that these are all different gods. And I believe that the Trinity doctrine was sort of conjured up in order to leave room for that. And as an attempt to reconcile many of these diverse philosophical perspectives, or at least to, say, to leave space for those who held them. Now from the same article, discussing the contemporary Christian heretic Marcion, contemporary to these others, right? Contemporary, roughly contemporary to um, Valentinus and Justin Martyr and, and Ptolemy, because he flourished in the second century as well. And Marcion had rejected the entire Old Testament and many books and portions of books in the New Testament, which showed that Christianity was indeed directly connected to it. Marcion had his own version of the Gospel of Luke, where he just took a knife and cut out all of the portions which related the Christ back to the promises of the Old Testament. He just cut it all out and, and took all the other words where they appear, like father and seed and children, and interpreted them allegorically in a random manner so that he could fit his own Christian philosophy. He could force Luke into fitting it. So the article goes on to say in reference to Marcion, while other Christian thinkers of the era were busy allegorizing the Old Testament in order to bring it into line with New Testament teaching, which is their perception, their replacement theology perception of New Testament teaching. Marcion allowed the New Testament, albeit in his own special version, 
to speak to him as a singular voice of authority, and he formulated his doctrine accordingly. This doctrine emphasized not only humankind's radical alienation from the realm of their birth, but also their lack of any genealogical relation to the God who sacrificed his own son to save them. In other words, Marcion painted a picture of humanity as a race displaced with no true home at all. The hope of searching for a lost home or of returning to a home from which one has been turned out was absent in the doctrine of Marcion. Like Pico della Mirandola, Marcion declared the nature of humankind to be that of an eternally intermediate entity, poised precariously between heaven and earth. And Pico della Mirandola was a writer, I believe, of Christian pseudo-philosopher, I would say, of the 14th century, maybe 15th, I'm sure, but I could be wrong. I sort of um, remember referencing him in relation to my works on my writings about Martin Luther and early Christian mysticism and Freemasonry and things like that. <sighs> the Jews and their lies, right? Marcion, unlike Pico, Marcion called for a radical displacement of humankind, a rupture in which humanity would awaken to its full, if not innate, possibilities. So we see the origins of the New Age thinking is not really New Age, right? It's really not. It's the same old philosophies of man expressed in modern terms. New Age thinking is not new. It's right there in Marcion. Here we see that Marcion also believed in replacement theology and went to the extreme of discarding the entire Old Testament and everything else which identified with it. Along with concepts from Plato and Aristotle, many elements of Gnosticism were later incorporated into the thinking of those 4th century so-called church fathers, like Epiphanius here, upon whom the Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches founded their universalist version of Christianity. Because the Gnostics grew out of... Alexandrian Jewry, they rejected the plain teachings of covenant theology and therefore also the literal meanings of the words of Christ, and especially in the epistles of Paul, in favor of a system of alternative interpretations of words. So father ceased to mean father, children ceased to mean children, and seed no longer referred to physical descendants. By that method, the words of Christ and the apostles could be perverted into their universalist doctrines. By that method, Christianity was also made safe for Jewry, and especially with the introduction of the Trinity concept because then it could be perceived that the Jews can worship God apart from Christ. Charles Weissman is the Gnostic. While he projects Gnostic behavior on us, 
And I have never cited Gnostics or mimicked their heresies in any of my proofs of two seed line. None. I've never used a Gnostic church father as an authority for two seed line. Even if I have cited Gnostic church fathers in different aspects, they, I don't need any of them to prove two seed line. All I need is the Bible, a little ancient history, and a little common sense. So you can see that the church, it kept making concessions to try and get that big tent and bring everyone under one church, you know, except in some parts of Gnosticism, as long as they could just get another country under the reins of the Catholic Church, they were happy to, you know, concede here and there. Right. It, it, it was basically a, a church formed on concessions that they accepted all these um, pagan rituals and they dressed them up as Christian rituals so that they could win the pagans. And they accepted all these Gnostic ideas so that they could, and, and this Trinitarianism and, and all these other heresies, so that they could reconcile all of these different schools of thoughts under one church. You're right. That's exactly what they did. It was a process of several centuries. Church fathers had written um, tomes of apologies, basically apologizing for all this bullshit instead of defending true Christianity. It, it wow. That's what is it? What does it take to make the big tent? Every time it's a failure. Every time. Christianity is not a big tent religion. Christianity is an I came only for the lost sheep of Israel religion. Yeah, and um, the, the main reason, um, you know, Christianity works so well is because the other races rejected Christianity. They had Islam and all that. But once we started converting them, that's when the whole thing just went downhill very quickly. Even the Trinity doctrine, I mean, we believe in one God, period. And in among identity Christians, there is only one God. He's God the Father. He's God the Son. He's the Holy Spirit. He's the rock in the desert. He's the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire. The, the burning in the bush. They're all different physical manifestations of the same God, the same personality who expresses himself to man in different ways through different vehicles at different times. There's one God, period, where the Trinity doctrine is a reflection of these Gnostic ideas that this um, ineffable father is always beneficent and good and that's one leg of God or one part of God in a trinity where this creator God of the Old Testament can be mean, mean-spirited, warlike. But that must be a different God than this, or a different personality at least in the trinity, than this ineffable father who's always good to everybody no matter what. He accepts fags. He loves them. Jesus loves me. And, and then you have the all-forgiving Christ, who's the third leg of the Trinity. And, and none of this is Christian. It's Gnostic. 
it's Gnostic. It, it's a perversion of Gnostic ideas, which, like you said, was a church, early church compromise to make room for this bullshit and even for, for Jews who want to reject Jesus and still claim to worship God. And, and it's a compromise. It's not Christianity at all. It's a compromise. And also the, the Trinity, it, it allows room for Mary in there as well, doesn't it? Sometimes it seems to be Mary, God, and Christ that where uh, people can still worship Mary and still believe it's part of the Trinity. Well, well, I mean, that's not an official Catholic Church doctrine, but it leaves open the possibility. I, I mean, Mary is called the Queen of Heaven by the Roman Catholic Church. <laughs> what the hell? And, and if you really understand the um, lust of Mexicans and, and other squat monsters found in South America, well, now they're all over North America, too. If you really understand their um, way of thinking, Christianity to them is the worship of a young virgin with a baby. They don't give a damn about the adult Jesus Christ. They don't care. They worship that young virgin with the baby. They're just pagans. They're, they're, they're never going to change. That's their inherent nature. Their, their Christianity is a religion of lust for a virgin. I have seen Mexican so-called Christians with my own eyes sit and stare for hours fantasizing over this young virgin with the baby, these depictions of this young, white, because she's always white, beautiful woman with this little baby and she has a halo around her head and a blue cloak over it and, and long hair. And she's an idealized white woman who's portrayed as a virgin with a baby and the Mexicans just lust over her. That's their Christianity. That's not Christianity. That that's just a perversion. So, so we see that out of, um, the, the need to believe replacement theology because apostolic Christianity was stamped out and the need to compromise with Gnostics and Platonists and, and all of these um, divergent theologies and philosophies that the church that became the Roman Catholic Church had, had absorbed all of these heresies in the name of Christianity and they were forced, because of their false doctrines, they were forced to accept these allegorical interpretations of Scripture and this allegorizing of all these New Testament words. Yet Weissman calls us a Gnostic. Now we will continue to speak of Weissman's interpretation of John chapter 8, picking up where we left off. And he wrote on page 31 of his book, Thus, when Christ said to some of these Judean people that they were of their father, the devil, he was employing a metaphor. These people were following lies and false doctrines, and this fact made the devil their father. The devil represents lies, falsehoods, and ungodly doctrine, and thus is the originator or father of them, 
as Jesus states, when the devil speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it, citing John 8.44. Then he says, the devil is said to be the father of lies in the same sense that Karl Marx is the father of communism. The inference is not biological or spiritual, but rather metaphorical, a type of figure of speech. And this all sounds wonderful, and you could convince an idiot with this, but it's really all bullshit, and we're going to prove it. Notice that Weissman does not mention the fact here that Christ had said in John 8.44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father will, you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth. He brings this up again later in his book, but he ignores it in relation to his argument here. Christ was not calling these supposedly, these supposed people. He was not calling them children of the devil. But he was calling them children of Cain, who was a devil. Just like the Jews' response in verse 41, that they were not born of fornication, this observation also destroys Weissman's entire argument. Now, we must ask, would Christ be describing these Jews as allegorical children of Cain? And if so, then where are Cain's teachings? Or of which wicked philosophy is Cain supposedly the father, in order for that to be true? What line of scripture can be drawn directly back to Cain, besides the genealogical line, which is fully apparent in the Old and New Testaments. What line? Who's the murderer from the beginning? Cain. Cain is the only one who be called a murderer from the beginning. He's clearly, right at the beginning, guilty of murder. Or maybe murderer does not and mean And Cain murder. was raised by Adam and Eve, right? Right. Just like Abel, and it was his genetics that made him turn evil. Absolutely, his inherent character. Because Adam must have accepted him as a son. He's still there as a young man sacrificing to God and kills his brother. So they're still together. I mean, today we have a million, maybe 10 million Adams raising Cain's because they were cucked out and their wives went and screwed around on them and, and they're raising sons that aren't really theirs. Melissa and I know one couple in Southeast Alabama, and they're active in Facebook circles, but we got rid of them from ours. They have a little baby that the father, and we met them, the father insists that's his son, and the mother insists that he's the son of the father, and both the father and mother look completely white, but the little baby looks just like a light-skinned nigger, and you could see it over two or three years, because it's only a few years old. It looks just like a light-skinned nigger from birth to the present time. And this father swears it's his kid. So either he's part nigger or the wife's part nigger, and it doesn't show at all because they're fair-skinned, the mother has blue eyes. Well, well, it doesn't show at all, or she was screwing around, and he's accepted her screw around as his, his son. It's incredible, but you look at the kid and you shake your head and like, there's no way that's their son. And, and there's probably a lot of that in the world today. I, I have no doubt. And we see a lot of it. 
we just can't go and take pictures of everybody and, and accost them for birth certificates and their stories. I, I mean, but when you see it, it's pretty plain. Wow. So, Cain, only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. So, Christ is telling these Judeans that they are the children of Cain. He's not telling them that they're children of the devil. Weissman's entire argument falls apart with that simple understanding. But Weissman couldn't read Genesis 6-4. He, and, and this is, and, and I'm going to talk about this briefly in a moment here, but this is the power of suggestion and repetition and how it works on us, that sometimes we just can't see what's really being said. And in Genesis 6-4, generations of identity Christian writers and all mainstream Christians read Genesis 6-4 and imagine that the giants are the product of the mixing between the sons of God and the daughters of men. And Weissman made that same insistence. But when you really read Genesis 6-4, you realize that there were giants in the earth in those days and after, after the race mixing happened. So the giants in the earth in those days were already there. Weissman failed to notice that. And, and so did millions of others. Weissman doesn't realize here that Christ is telling these Judeans that they're the descendants of Cain, not of the devil. So his whole argument about this being a father of some um, heresy, some error, some false philosophy, it all falls apart. Because Cain didn't start any of those things. Cain was a murderer from the beginning. And these are his children, his literal children. Christ was not calling these people children of the devil, but children of Cain, who was a devil. Just like the Jews' response in verse 41, that they were not born of fornication, this observation destroys Weissman's entire argument. Now, we must ask, would Christ be describing these Jews as allegorical children of Cain? Of course not. And Cain cannot be blamed for any false doctrine that came from Judaism unless these people are Cain's descendants because Cain wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a murderer from the beginning. He wasn't a heretic from the beginning <laughs> or the founder of a false school of religion from the beginning. Neither was Christ calling the devil the father of lies in this passage. I know that's the common Judeo-Christian interpretation, but it's not true. As it is in the King James Version, he was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him, when he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Not the father of lies, the father of his own lie. That's what Christ is saying. As we have already asserted, only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. And it is demonstrable that the Edomites did indeed descend in part from Cain as the Kenites had mingled with the Canaanites in early times. Cain spoke two lies when he murdered his brother and God inquired of him, where we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 9, And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, 
Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. That's line number one. Am I my brother's keeper? That's line number two. In the law later given at Sinai, as well as in the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, it is evident that each of us should be our brother's keeper. But Cain even lied blatantly by claiming that he did not know his whereabouts, when in fact he had killed him. But Christ is not calling either the devil or Cain the father of lies here. Christ is only saying that Cain, being a liar, was the author of his own lies. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. In other words, the lie came from his own inherent nature and not from God. God did not create man to be liars. The New American Standard Bible has the last clause of John 8.44 to read, and the father of lies, but that does not represent the original text. And rather, just like Weissman, they are interpolating their own ideas into their translation. Satan, the devil, is not anywhere called the father of lies in Scripture. And in any event, Cain is the subject of that statement and not Satan or the devil. So, Christ would have to be calling Cain the father of lies, not the devil. However, Weissman, Weissman is at least as good a liar as Cain. I have no doubt. He's lied time at, how many times has, has he lied in this book? I don't know if you've been keeping track, but I can't. A hundred. Yeah, right. It may as well be a hundred. Because it's like a whole bunch. In, in one paragraph a couple of weeks ago, I, I caught him with four and, and even five lies. In one paragraph. And here he is with more lies. Because Christ is calling these Judeans the children of Cain. Not the children of some devil who's the father of lies. That's all bullshit. None of that's actually in the statement. But here there's something else in, in this passage. Which... Even I myself have only really have I'm tripping over myself, which even I myself have only recently realized. I shouldn't ever write with um two words that begin with the letter R in one sentence consecutively, I guess. I myself have only recently realized this and, and I don't know why. It has this has long been taken for granted by translators, and even I myself fell into this trap, that the last pronoun in John 8.44 is neuter. The last sentence in that verse in the Christogonian New Testament reads, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from of his own devices, because he is a liar and the father of it. But the pronoun, atu, may very well be masculine as the two are spelled exactly the same. There's no distinction in the Greek. The feminine has a different form. And with pronouns in different cases, sometimes the masculine and the neuter have different forms. But it's not the case with this pronoun in the genitive case where they have the same form. And they're spelled exactly the same. And in that case, it may also refer to Cain rather than to the lie, because that pronoun is reflective on what was previously mentioned.
So it could be that he was the father of the lie or he was he was the father of him, of him, if it's to be read in the masculine, his father. So the last sentence may very well be read when he speaks a lie. He speaks from of his own devices because he is a liar and his father and the father of him. It can just as easily be read and the father of him instead of and the father of it. He is a liar and the father of him, which we would translate into English so it makes more sense because he is a liar and his father. In other words, Cain's father is also a liar. Cain's father is the devil. Christ may very well be saying that, and the more I read it, the more convinced I am. But this is profound, and I wish I had realized it when I translated John in 2006. But I didn't even yet realize it when I did my commentary on that chapter of John in June of 2019. And that shows me the power of indoctrination, that even I'm susceptible to it. How we understand something a certain way in our minds because we have read or heard it so frequently for so long that we fail to look at it another way. And therefore, we may never see the truth. Indoctrination alone can blind you from seeing the truth. And to me, this is an example of that. Now, I hope to be correcting this oversight in the weeks to come. I have yet to incorporate this into my commentary on John, so I'm publishing it here for the first time. It will be added to my part so, so Bill, of my commentary on John in the near future. Go on. Just so I, I understand this correctly, it's saying because he is a liar and his father as well. So basically, Cain and the, the, the fallen angel or whatever you want to call it, the serpent. Right. Right. Christ may very well be saying, because he is a liar and his father, his father, referring to Cain, he may very well be saying that. The text can be read in that manner with no violation of Greek grammar, because he is a liar and his father. And, and I'm going to um, consider this a lot more deeply because I've only realized this recently. I, I was reading John 8, 44, and I'm like, wow, why didn't I see that before? It could very well be read in that manner because he is a liar and his father. Should it be read in that manner? <laughs> Should it be read in that manner so that I change my translation? I'm not entirely sure about that. I'm not. I'm going to really have to consider that. So, but it could be read in that manner. So is Christ, Cain's the subject here, because he is a liar and his father. But should that um, shift away from the lie as the immediate subject? I, I mean, it's legitimate because he is a liar, makes Cain the subject again. So that auto, that, reflect, that reflexive pronoun could refer back to he, back to Cain. And there's no violation of Greek grammar there. So should I read it that way? I have to, I, I, I'm, right now, I'm of a mind to change my translation. 
But I don't know why I didn't notice this before. I'm, I'm translating John. I mean, I gave my translation an awful lot of thought, but we are prone, being men, to taking some things for granted that we always just thought were true. So we don't see everything. Whenever we take something for granted, we are very liable to be blindsided by something we didn't see because we're taking the greater picture for granted. So that's a trap. It's a trap that none of us are immune from falling into. We have to constantly um, be introspective about our thoughts, our belief. And, and I, I pray that I try to be that way as much as humanly possible, but I could miss things too. And this, I, I never considered this reading because, simply because, I took it for granted that the lie was the subject and remained the subject throughout the end of the sentence. But he is, because a liar he is, that's just a, a verb, it's not a pronoun, and his father is a legitimate reading. I just want to think about it some more and make certain that that reading is um, can't be challenged, right? But it's very possible. It's very possible that that's what Christ intended to say. In any event, I don't need that phrase to prove the Tusi line is true or to prove that um, Adam is not Cain's father. So it's, it's another reading which can be read in our favor. But I don't need to force that issue. Why I didn't think of it sooner? Well, when in 2006, when I sat down and over um, six months, uh, it took me to translate the Gospel of John and his epistles and the Revelation. And then it took me, and I did it, over, I could have done it quicker. I wasn't trying to beat the clock. And then I took another six months to write my notes. I, I got two notebooks and to verify my translation, to go back through it again, every line and all the possible um, alternative readings and the variant manuscripts. It, it's time consuming. It, it's a process, right? It doesn't happen in a day. You can't translate John in a day considering all, all of the alternate readings and and variations in the manuscripts and all that stuff. It takes a while. So I took my time with it. And that's how I did my entire translation over four years. Well, actually, over four years that were really in a period of six or eight years, right? I, I didn't, I did other things besides that. Well, maybe Yahweh's opened your eyes now. You can keep keep them closed for as long as he wants and then at a particular time if he wants he can open them if he wants something to be known well well it's funny but every time i mean even myself every time i read a significant portion of scripture i'm susceptible to seeing things from a different angle in a different light um why didn't i think of that before or wow i get that now it, it's scripture is written in a very simple, concise manner, but it's actually very, very deep when you actually study it. And you can see new things constantly. It's like a fountain that keeps giving and giving and giving, and, and the water supply is endless. But that's what Christ said it would be anyway. I mean, he himself said that, so... <laughs>
that's um, part of what he said to the Samaritan woman, right? In, in John chapter 4. Continuing with, with Weissman, uh, I don't know if we should continue or, or, or if we should stop here and, and um, pick up this conversation again next week because I notice it's already sort of late. So I think we'll I don't mind. It's up to you. I'm happy to go on. Or if you wanted to bring in Michael's um, podcast, that's fine too. Whatever you right. want. I mean, I think that we've had enough of a digression here or a couple of digressions that we could leave this here and pick up where we are next week and, and try to drive some of these points home again um, in a summary. But I'll try to make the summary briefer and so that we make a little more progress through this chapter. I think we've hardly touched on Weissman today, just a couple of paragraphs, maybe. But he deserves this, and, and we need uh, yes. I believe that Christian identity deserves this. And, and I think you've had a comment about that recently. Uh, I don't know if you want to repeat that real quick. The, Which the, comment? Sorry? The gentleman that said that it was a good thing that we were doing this, that it was a good thing that we had this, um, this division that you had with some of your friends, which, which was basically the catalyst for the series. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Because um, often you, you know something's right, you know, in CI, but then if someone challenges you, you, you won't necessarily be as well read as, you know, other longtime CI people. So you won't know how to respond or what arguments to bring up. So something like this, it goes for each one, one by one, and then you you realize, oh, okay, that's a good argument. That's a good argument. It all makes sense. So if I'm ever challenged, I can raise all these points, you know. Well, right, and and that was Clifton's philosophy too. That um, that he answered a lot of those heresies, such as the sixth and eighth day creation heresy, and and um, the devil is the flesh heresy, which Weissman gets into. And Clifton had answered a lot of those years ago, twenty years ago, and he did that, and and he said that he did that because every time he answered something that somebody else had written that he didn't agree with, that it forced him to go and study further so that he could answer it in a manner in which he felt was effective. That he considered their arguments, and, and we do, we have to. We consider their arguments and whether or not they have merit, and if they don't have merit, even though we think that we're learned, we go and we often go and study the fine points even deeper, which um, either informs us that perhaps we have to change our minds, which sometimes that happens, or strengthens our conviction even further because we're, we constantly find new evidence which verifies our positions. And, and that's when I came into um, Christian identity, I myself had, through my own reading of history, had accepted the identity half of the equation before I accepted the two seed line half. I had to look into that in the scriptures further to see if it could be proven or it, that it was certainly true. And it took maybe a year or two for me to come to the conclusion that two seed line was true and that the tree of life and, and the, the seed of the woman 
was with all um, honesty and, and with all truth, only the white race and that all the others must belong to that other tree. That, that took me two years of study, solid study, straight study, um, arguing back and forth on friendly terms with um, Clifton and with another gentleman named um, David Gray, who was actually kind enough to set um, in type all of my early notes and, and translations on Paul and Luke. And I don't remember if he did John or not. He didn't do Matthew, Mark, and, and, and the general epistles because I didn't have them translated in time. I did those last, I believe. I don't really remember. But I don't think he did John either. I may have done that when I got home. But that, that uh, when I got home from prison, right? You don't have computers in, in prison. Well, well, David Gray had also... Um, been attempting a Genesis commentary, which he never completed, but which was really pretty good. I really liked it and helped it, it helped me. And this um, concept that the other races were not created by God and, and all of these things, which we still espouse to this day, and which I believe we've taken a lot, we've gone a lot further to prove today. But these ideas, Clifton and I had after our first couple of years together that we came to these conclusions, especially when I, when I read um, the epistles of Peter and Jude in Greek and, and the epistles of Paul in Greek. So it, it took time to develop these doctrines and, and we teach things that were never taught before in Christian identity, but we also had a good head start with what was taught by Compare and, and Swift and older identity writers, we would have never gotten where we were without that head start. So that that's... Uh, yeah, and, and as you said, it strengthens your argument and your conviction when you can keep going back and trying to say, you know, I need more evidence, and you push further and further, and your argument gets stronger. And, but also... Um, you know, you take things for granted in terms you assume everybody realizes this and then you realize, hang on, they don't because they're falling for this, you know, silly heresy and you have to properly explain it, even though you may think it's obvious. Obviously, for some people it's not. And that's why it's good to do things like this to really absolutely destroy people like Wiseman and show you that they've got no ground at all. Well, well right. It's a constant exercise. That the um, the upholding of doctrine should be no, no doctrine should ever be perceived as one hundred percent black and white solid every time. It's a constant exercise and inquiry into the scriptures to see if each matter of your doctrine is upheld in every situation, and and if it's not. Well, you better go back and, and take a look at it again. I, I mean, if you believe that, um, oh, I, I, I don't know. If you believe that divorce and that remarriage after divorce is evil, 
and what we can all look down on it yes that that it's not the ideal situation it's not the way god created us male and female or whatever but if you believe that it's evil you better think again because even in the parables of christ and in the law it's permissible for a man to be to 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 remarry or to marry a woman who had been divorced so that's one example it only says in leviticus of the priests that they're required to marry virgins. So marrying a divorced woman, a woman who'd been put away, is indeed permissible in the law. So it's not evil. It's not ideal because it's not the way we were meant to live by God that we were designed. But men have weaknesses and, 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 and problems that they, um, that they yield to when they're spiritually weak or, or burdened by the world. So, I, I mean, sin is sin, right? We all live in that state of sin. So we acknowledge that, but we have that permission in the law, so it can't be considered evil. That There's all kinds of things that we might fall into one way of thinking, and I'm trying to use that as an example, where the one way of thinking may not be applicable in every situation, and we better go back and look at the law and get our doctrines from that, that we're forced quite often in situations in life to go back and consider what the Word of God says. And every time I encounter a Charles Weissman argument in this book, I, I try to disprove it in simple and clear language and the meanings of words and the citations in scripture. But I have to reconsider every argument as I encounter them. So that does help me answer things from a different perspective and test to see if what I believe holds up against his arguments. So yeah, it's an exercise, but it's a necessary exercise. It really is. Christians should constantly challenge yeah, and, what uh, they perceive and and see if to, the scriptures uphold it. And we see again and again that two seed lines, the only one that truly holds up to everything and is how the scriptures should be interpreted. And I sincerely believe that. And, and in my own studies, as I said, my early studies, it took me two years to come to that conclusion. Two years of solid um, Bible reading, word studies, letters back and forth with the gentleman that I mentioned and, and assessing all sides of the, of the arguments in the situation. So, so I didn't just come into two seed line because I heard a good sermon in a CI church somewhere. And it, it sounds like it made sense. I came in, <coughs> I came into this from a, from a, from being isolated and, and, actually studying it all for myself and proving it to myself after I heard it from other people in their books and letters. So it, it's a long, arduous process. And, and no, um, no Christian identity adherent or anybody who listens to me should just take for granted what I say. They should go read it for themselves. <laughs> Don't take nothing for granted. Every time I take something for granted, like whether or not that um, that final pronoun in John eight forty four is 
neuter or if it's masculine and changes the reading, well, well, if you take everything for granted, you're not going to learn anything. You have to consider it both ways and, and give it deep thought to see if it holds up. That's necessary. So don't take nothing for granted. And we'll reserve the rest of our time that this evening, and, and it's going to be over two hours now, but that's okay. We'll save it for, for Michael, who is an old friend of ours, and I will append that to this, to this podcast for this Saturday. I already have it recorded. Truthfits, thank you. Thank you very much for being here, and I appreciate it. No problem. No problem. I look forward to hearing say. You know, a few old stories and stuff. That would be great. But yeah, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all the evil devils out there. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh. Thank you. Okay, today we have our longtime friend here. I'm only going to call him Michael. Michael has been listening to Christagenia and has been involved in the chat rooms at Christagenia for probably... 10 or 11 years, maybe longer. I don't remember. I mean, I'm only doing this now for Christagenia is only about 11, 11 and a half years old, I think. Or is it 12? Christagenia is 12 years old, I believe, this past January. It, it's confusing to me. So Michael may have been with us for 12 years or, or possibly just about that long. Um, he's going to give us some background on how he came into Christian identity, and he, Michael was well acquainted with a lot of the Christian, Christian identity pastors and teachers of the 1990s and early 2000s, and he's going to give us some background on that, and, and especially in regard to Charles Weissman, who has been the target of a recent series at Christagenia, which is still ongoing, um, addressing Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? Hello, Michael, and thank you for being here. Hello. Hello, Michael. You want to tell us about how you got into Christian identity, how you started out? I mean, I know it was a long time ago, and your parents were involved, and maybe you could give us some background so that we can build up to the point that what we're doing this for, which is things that you were told about Charles Weissman. So, well, just real quick, as a young little boy, my grandparents used to watch. Um, I think it was Armstrong, and then another subsidiary program back in the sixties, and then later on in seventy four, nineteen seventy four, latter part of that year, I remember I came across my dad came across Gene Scott talking about the tribes. And I kept that in my mind, came across certain latter rain ministers that were kicked out of the Pentecostal corporations out of New York and Canada and uh, picked up their writings that were teaching on the tribes and the restoration of Adam Israel and uh, things of that nature. And at the same time, in the late 70s through the 80s, off and on, I'd listen to America's Promise either on my radio or my little shortwave and also pick up uh, two or three other uh, Christian identity radio programs, uh, Bertrand Compare, they would, one radio station would post his program, I believe it was like three times a week. 
and uh, I would listen to those. And then in the 90s, I, the late eight, late 80s, came across Pete Peters, Laporte, caught of Laporte, Colorado, Church of Christ. And, of course, uh, later on, Ted Wyland and uh, Destiny Publications, uh, Howard B. Rand. Long story short, uh, in the 90s, I remember, I believe it was in, uh, got their material, all their little staple backs. And, uh, but I always had to witness in my gut or my spirit or inner man, whatever you want to title it, uh, that I knew. I knew there was some glue there that glued me together with the tribes and that these people were Adamic people. I understood what Adamic meant, not to the degree that I do now. But uh, long story short, in the 90s, uh, 97, I believe it was, I went to what was, was a heavy patriot movement during the Clinton decade and the latter part of the uh, Trump uh, Bush era. A lot of patriots across Northern California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana, Nevada. Uh, so I gravitated to that. And uh, a friend of mine, his name was uh, Gary, I believe. This is a long time ago. Invited me to a little conference down, I believe it was outside of Fresno on 97, and Weissman spoke. Um, the Barleys were there, Wylam was there, and a whole group of other people. I don't remember their names. Uh, the old elderly gentleman from Arizona, um, not Stackhouse, but I can't, I can't remember his name, but he had a ministry in there. I believe Ramsey was there. And long story short, we were sitting at a dinner table at about 16, 18 of us, you know, and I had a chance to meet Dave and Martha. They had already moved up to, uh, they had already been settled in Sandpoint, Idaho. And long story short, we're sitting, well, I'm probably well, sitting about seven, eight. I'm sorry, I just want a, a little more, like not all of our listeners are thoroughly familiar with all of these names. So Everett Ramsey was there. He's still around. He's still a Christian identity pastor. We call him Christian identity light, but he's still here. And David Martha Barley are the people behind America's Promise Ministries. Is that right? That that's um, Martha Barley is Sheldon Emery's daughter. Correct. Okay. And and Ted Wyland was there. Yes, he was. And and Pete Peters. So what year is this? I believe it was in 96 or 97. Okay. What, were any other names there? They're, they're full names so that our listeners understand. I'm sorry. Pete Peters. No, that's um, okay, Bill. David Martha Barley, Ted Weiland, Charles Weissman. Let me think. I got, the faces, I got the faces, Bill, but I don't have the names. Okay, this is really interesting um, Christian identity history. Yeah, you know, 1996 is pretty, um, it, it's pretty late. It, it's um, the year that I went to prison. It's the year before Clifton Emmerheiser started his ministry. So this is before Clifton's time, right? It, it's a long time ago. I mean, it's recent, but it's a long time ago. Yes. It's relative, right? It's all relative. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. So, so I'm sorry for interrupting, but you're at this dinner with, um, and, and you're seated with the Barleys. Yes. I believe Stephen Jones and Darla were there too. Ron, uh, Ron, I believe, uh, yeah, James Bergamo was there and his wife. 
And long story short, we're sitting at the table and I'm not really paying attention and everybody's having, they're talking about different things, finance, and some of us are talking about scripture. And I overheard Weissman make a comment and I thought it was tongue in cheek. And he said, you know, you could cut the tip of my little finger off and I wouldn't have any Jew blood in me or I wouldn't have any Jew in me. Now, I didn't think about it, and everybody was kind of laughing and giggling about different things in the conversation, but I caught that. And I looked over at Martha, and I said, is that true? I just heard you say if he cut the tip of his little finger off, he wouldn't have any Jew in him. And she just looked at me straight face, not a smile, nothing, just straight as can be. And... And then I looked over at uh, Stephen Jones. He says, we don't comment on that. And then Martha looked at me straight face and said, he's not joking. And Darla was there, Stephen's wife, Darla Jones. She says, no, he's not kidding. I said, well, why does he make it sound like a joke? I didn't really understand the Jew issue to the, uh, I did understand it in the light that we were taught. But I didn't understand the significance of it because uh, they would always incorporate Israelites during the first century time of Christ. They would also incorporate Israelites of Judea as being just as bad as the Edomites, and they would always stress more on the Israelite Judeans than they would the Edomite faction. And that was something I noticed very early. But I just remember their demeanor. Martha was more humble, like she was sad. I mean, Darla was more humble, like she was sad about it. But Martha, she was really strong about no, he's not kidding. It was almost like we don't talk about that. And so then Dave were, made a comment. He's a very knowledgeable teacher. So because he's supposedly very knowledgeable, which I've, I think I've proven that he's not really knowledgeable at all. And if he was knowledgeable, then he was being outright deceptive. And, and I really think I've proven that many times in my first 10 portions of, of reviewing his book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? But that's besides the point, because he is, um, I guess he was personable. He seems like he was personable and, and academic and knowledgeable. Because of that, they're giving him a pass for being of part Jewish ancestry. They're giving him a pass. And, and they evidently don't understand the parable of the wheat and the tares and the wolves in sheep's clothing and all of these other parables of Christ. That's correct, Bill. But let me make another, uh, make another comment, and I, I, I'm telling you the truth. That was the first conference, okay? I was, I was kind of naive. I just was, naive. I was excited to meet everybody, okay? But the yeah. first thing I noticed is everybody there, everybody there, had a, economically were very comfortable, okay, if you know what I mean. These people were very comfortable. They could afford the airfare. They could afford the, afford the hotels. Uh, they rented nice cars when they would fly in. There's a lot of things I observed in a lot of the conversation. A majority of the conversation had to do around economics, investment, and things of that nature, real estate, things of, that you wouldn't think you'd see at a conference. Well, well, right. That kind of language doesn't belong among true Christians. That that, that paradigm doesn't belong. I don't have any investments. I, I don't. I never owned a stock in my life or a bond in my life. I've never had an IRA or a four hundred one k or any of that. I, I'm not saying that it, it's um in, in today's environment we're all locked into Babylon. I'm, I'm not saying that it's a sin necessarily because a lot of people don't have a choice if they have to work 
for for corporations to to make their way and feed their children. So I don't despise people that might have those things, but I don't have those things and I never have and and I never would. And and that's not a boast, it's just not me. I, I mean if I have a little extra cash, it's in my checking account. <laughs> that's where that's the only place it goes. It it's um my savings account is practically empty. That that's life, right? And and these people are all economically co- comfortable and also um engaged with the world. And even to talk about stocks and bonds and investments at a Christian identity conference, are, are you kidding me? It, if you had those things, leave that at home. It doesn't belong in, in Christian discussion. It, it's evil. It's worldly, as far as I'm concerned. Now, some of us have no choice. We have to put what we, we're blessed with wealth. We have to put it somewhere. And, and I'd rather put it into real property and things like that. But that's besides the point. These things are being spoken about openly in a Christian identity conference. That's, that's like a Judeo Christian, um, Southern Baptist convention or, or Knights of Columbus in, in the Northeast. That sounds like one of their conferences. They talk about those things, right? I mean, true Christians shouldn't be chasing um, worldly wealth like that. So that surprises me. But the um, the acceptance of Charles Weissman, in spite of the fact that he had some Jewish ancestry, that that's um, really reveals to me where they are at in in their spiritual walk with Christ or or their understanding of scripture or whatever however you want to term it that's horrible that that's um that that's a wolf in sheep's clothing and no wonder why he he was so damnant against two seed line so i'm not surprised no, at exactly, all no exactly bill the the nature that he displays in his book the deceptions in his book the many lies he told the um the way that he contradicts himself from one chapter to another just to try to prove two seed line wrong shows me that he he must be dishonest and and he must be of um reprobate or spurious ancestry he must be that that's the word of god that's the parables of christ and and that these others accepted him that they were um compromising with evil the barleys the joneses they compromised these are the people that um i've criticized all throughout my 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 ministry and and clifton too because of their wishy-washy positions and and i i'm really appreciative of of your candidness and and supplying this background for us because it gives us insight into the nature of these so-called identity identity Christians who, who supposedly understand the covenants of God and their compromising nature and perhaps why they compromise. Well, exactly. And I remember with David Martha back then, I would always send him if I had a little extra, an extra 20, 30, 40 bucks, maybe every two weeks. And after that conference in 97, the only time I'd send him money is if I was getting some booklets from other authors and stuff like that. I never gave any gave him another five cents, and I never gave Laporte 
Uh, I probably sent Laporte maybe three or four like little offerings. I never gave them five more cents unless I was ordering something and I would even take advantage of a discount or free shipping. You know, now, and it was now, like I said at that conference. Well, I'm sorry. Laporte is Pete Peters' operation. Correct. And they both sold books. I know they did. I think when I was in prison, I may have bought a book or two from America's Promise Ministries. I vaguely remember that, but never from Pete Peters. I never liked Pete Peters or from Charles. Exactly. Weissman or from Ted Wyland. I never I, I never liked those people. I, I had um, back in 1997 for about six months when I was first um, acquainted with Christian identity for about six months, I subscribed to the Jubilee, the Jubilee newspaper that you mentioned. And Charles Weissman, I'm, I'm sorry, no, Ted Wyland had a week, had a column in it. I don't remember if that paper came out monthly or twice a month. I don't remember. But Ted Wyland had a column in there, a, a like full page column and book advertisements and things like that. But I, I, I read his column a few times and didn't like him right from the beginning. He, I saw that he was a compromiser. Exactly. And all of them would put emphasis on being baptized in water. That was one thing they all had in common. Well, that's sacramentalism. And, and I know Pete Peters was huge on that, but that's sacramentalism. That, that's you have to do something to save yourself. Jesus didn't do it good enough. And you have to be baptized in water, but you got to be baptized a certain way. They were no different than, than mainstream Protestants. If you go from the Church of God to the Baptist Church or from the Baptist Church to the Pentecostal Church, you always had to be baptized again their way in order to be saved, or you can't be saved. It, it's incredible. Exactly. Well, well you said you told me um, casually you had gone to another conference in Philadelphia. <laughs> Philadelphia. <laughs> you might want to share that experience. It's, it's, I mean, we've already gotten past our main point for um, doing this recording, but it, it just might be interesting to people. Yeah, 2007, uh, Dave and Martha called me, and they sent me a flyer that there was going to be a conference in Philly. Weissman wasn't there, but if I do remember correctly, they had what was called the uh, like a televideo. It was like an early vision of uh, – what we call Skype, which I don't know anything about, but I remember they, they put the master together and then they played it. And he spoke there and he was speaking on Ezekiel 27 and 28. I remember the topic and this, you know, the Garden of Eden and these passages. And there was also other people there, such as this man by the name of Emery and his wife, retired Eastern Airlines uh, pilot. And, uh, of course, Dave and Martha, uh, Stephen and uh, Darla Jones. Uh, there was a Bergerman and his wife and Ron Oja, guy by the name Brooks. And the thing was, we were all sitting around dinner down the street at this nice restaurant. And uh, they were discussing uh, different things, opportunities of finance in the Middle East. And long story short, I believe it was Brooks came up, popped up and said, yeah, Charles Weissman was talking about investing in this Middle East program where, you know, for so for financial uh, economic advantages. Wow. And I popped up and said, I said, well, Weissman, I said, yeah, I said, uh, 
he knows about this thing. And I was talking to Ron Oja and uh, Stephen Jones. And they go, yeah, you want to invest in it, Mike? You usually will request a minimum of $5,000. Well, I said, I don't have that kind of money. Long story <laughs> short, I made the comment. Well, was he, he was the one that said, and I was kind of tongue-in-cheek, I said, he cut the pinky off. If he cut the tip of his pinky off, he wouldn't have any Jew in him. <laughs> and Ron O just smiled and giggled. And Stephen Jones was kind of straight face, and Darla kind of put her head down in sadness, and then Martha looked at me, and she remembered 10 years before. And Martha was very direct. That's nothing to, and, and it, very direct the way that it was like this. Don't do that. We don't talk about that. Wow, and that's what we should anything, talk about. I, I could whip all of them, you know. That, right. That's what we so I didn't get offended about. or anything, and they got offended. Amazing. So exactly. the Marley's, Martha Barley got offended that you would dare mention that Weissman was of Jewish ancestry. Yeah, because I, at the time, Bill, I didn't have the revelation like I do now, learning like I do now. But at the time, it stuck with me. Okay, and then I kind of jokingly brought that up, and it kind of ruffled some feathers, which I was, I could care less. I wasn't intimidated. I could have whipped them all at the same time, you know. And long story short, Martha was very, uh, you know, it's like I'm supposed to, quote, unquote, show the love of God to them, but yet I got to toe their line, you know. I got to be Mr. Congeniality, but yet at the same time, I make a little joking comment while they're talking about all kinds of stuff. When they bring up Weissman's name, and I make a comment about that, what I heard about the pinky, they get offended. But, and basically, yeah, I, in my mind, about... I just said, you know, F you, Martha. Okay. Brooks, in, in this conversation, Brooks is Jory Brooks. He, he's more like a um, British-Israel type pastor from Michigan. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I forgot his first name. <laughs> Yeah, Jory Brooks. He, he was in with the whole Charles Weissman, Stephen Jones, Dave Barley crowd all the way back from the 80s or whenever they got their start. I, I don't remember. It's before my time. So Clifton had actually addressed Jory Brooks a few times in some of his in some of his essays and some of his writings, because Jory Brooks is another compromise identity type. But here we have. um Dave Barley and Charles Weissman, because it's coming from Weissman, and we have Dave Barley, Stephen Jones, Jory Brooks, and and their wives suggesting that Christian identity believers invest money in the devil in Palestine, in the Middle East. And they think that's okay. They think that's good to give your money to the devil. I mean, it's one thing to take your money down to the to the Jew-controlled bank and, and put it in a savings account or a checking account. It's at a whole different level to buy stocks and bonds in Satan Incorporated in the Middle East. That's at a whole different level, man. <laughs> That's a whole different level of evil. Well, Bill, it surprised me just real quick, and it surprised me because during that Iraq war era with Bush, there were they were pointing out uh, the financial opportunities for investment. Finally, Dave and, Bar uh, Dave and Martha pulled out of it later on, you know, 
And then after that conference, I believe also they lost their son. One of their young boys passed away. They had, I think, a total of seven children, and that was a real sad thing. But these kind of things happened, and I see these things happen with them and with Peter's. And I just kind of say, I just thank Yahweh. I just kind of kept everything to myself and let him take care of matters. I don't wish evil on anybody like that. But man, at the same time, strange things did start to happen in the remaining five, six years down the road after 2007. Right. Didn't Peters lose his son also? And, and he really took it to heart? And, one of them he did. The other one, I believe, became an alcoholic. Well, they're, I, I mean, Dave Barley is still around, but. Um, and, and from what I understand, he's repented of his universalism, but I don't know if that's just a baby step because his doctrines and, and a lot of his writings were so screwed up that he has a lot more to repent of than just universalism. I mean, he basically worshiped Trump as the next Cyrus. And I, I heard that myself and, and I was quite disgusted with it. Yeah. He had it in his, one of his new newsletters just couple years back he's still looking for a political solution he still has that patriot mindset from the 90s yeah i i mean i could imagine i wasn't there of course but being out west even from the reagan revolution right how the um patriotism swept across a lot of um white communities and the militia movement started to grow and that they actually got this idea that they could take the country back at the voting booths while building up these militias. And, and it was all destroyed. It, it was all destroyed through treachery. I mean, Ruby Ridge, Waco, and, and those things just discouraged people. It should have been encouraging them. It just discouraged them. But they should have never been looking for any solution at a voting booth and it's our people in general have a lot of repenting to do but for christian identity people to be um caught up in that i mean it's easy for me to speak of and to criticize in hindsight because now this is 2020 but for christian identity people to be caught up in any political solution you're not really a christian as far as i'm concerned the, the scriptures tell us that everything we do to, to fix things is going to fail. Everything. The only thing we can do is repent and submit to our God. These men evidently don't understand that. They don't understand the implications of somebody who's of Jewish ancestry, especially somebody of Jewish ancestry being a so-called Christian identity teacher. No, that's not right. That's never going to be right. That can't be right. That's a wolf in sheep's clothing every single time. And their doctrines are always going to show that. Which is why it must be the reason why Weissman lied time and time again in order to try to disprove two seed line. There's no other explanation. No, exactly. And one other thing, Bill, about Charles Weissman, if you saw him, he wasn't a very big guy. He was very quiet. He was introvert. He kind of had a nerdy look like he was a mind kind of person, an analytical guy. Long story short, he had the opportunity for years to study at, I think, a big university in Minnesota. So he, I believe it was Minnesota, he was very quiet, introvert. He just sit there. I mean, you'd think he was a corpse. He never responded. No emotion. 
you just kind of a you know just dry his demeanor was where everybody else at the table would they be expressing you know their emotion and having a good time and you know talking about the lord and talking about this and talking about that and he just sit there he wouldn't hardly say a word he's always withdrawn that way interesting that that's interesting to me i i mean i, I like to um have a few beers with the guys and let it all hang out right just be myself i i, I can't i would be suspect of somebody like that at, at a group that that wasn't really fellowshipping right but he brought if, if a lot of money into uh i'm sorry Fe fellowship fellowship if you can't fellowship, true fellowship is just joining yourself to a group of your fellow white Christians and, and being one of the crowd and, and, um, having companionship and conversation about average everyday things. And, and, and if you can't do that, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry. It, it's if your only fellowship is from a position of authority from a podium that's not fellowship that's bullshit that, that i don't accept that <laughs> i just want to be one of the boys and and have a good time and and share what i can with all of my brethren and that's fellowship exactly and we did the two the the, the three days I was there in Philly, we were on the outskirts of Philly at the Sheridan outside. I think it was called Frazier or something in, in Pennsylvania. And uh, we had a lot of fun. And there was a couple of, like Ron Oja, he was, he was fun to talk to because he would talk to, about the gematria, you know, and correlate it with the new, the new Jerusalem. And he'd get into the numerics and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, well, that stuff's a little The number values too, and things okay. of that nature. Fascinated with Kabbalah, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I didn't know that then, Bill, until later on I discovered that on my own, that it was just something to stay away from. It's just nothing but sewage. So I haven't followed it anymore. I mean, some of that stuff can be fun to talk about, but no, let's not make doctrines out of it. No, let's not. No, I, I mean, I can understand having an enjoyable conversation with, with some of that but it, it's it, it's not something to build a worldview upon ever, and it's I mean there are some um, fascinating aspects of it, and there are I mean it's unquestionable, but it's no nothing to build a worldview on, and nothing to establish doctrine on. It, it's um, our worldview and doctrine should come from the plain words of Scripture. Exactly. Exactly. Well, well, I want to thank you very much for sharing that with us. And, and um, I think it's a blessing to have guys like you that have been around forever in, in, um, involved in, in my Christiania community. So I appreciate that. And whenever they do share something like this, it's invaluable that because it, it's, we, we need to know that the history of Christian identity, we need to understand it. And, Understanding it thoroughly allows us to root out all of the bad ideas, bad doctrines, bad teachings that don't belong. And, and as, so we know if we know why and when they got into Christian identity, I think it's a lot easier to get them out, to extricate them. No, I agree. I didn't, they never got their fangs into me.
Well, I'm 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 glad for you. I'm happy for you for that. We we can only praise Yahweh for that. I mean, that that's um it, it's a blessing to be saved from error. It it always is. Yeah, no, I saw the mixture on a lot of this bill just real quick on when uh, Arnold Kennedy years ago I got his paper, you know, I think it was in 2003 or 2004 on John 3 and 1 Peter 123. And I bared witness with that. And then, of course, Clifton put his brochures out, you know, born under contract. And then later on, you know, your CNT and everything, everything is always just dovetailed perfectly for me. I think that has a lot to do because I always take time every day to study the scriptures in the light that I had. But I always could, for some reason, I had a, I had a, a, a checkpoint in my mind. I go, this doesn't sound right, you know. And certain passages, I'd see these so-called heavy hitters use, whether it was Jones and the boys or Weissman and the boys or Laporte on baptism and stuff. And then I realized, no, these guys are falling back into the ritualism. You know, a lot of that is is to placate to the Judeos, keep the Judeos satisfied at the same time, bring them in and get them, you know, on their mailing list. Well, well when I was in prison, I wrote Stephen Jones and he never answered me. And I wrote Ted Weiland, and he never answered me. And and I was being gentlemanly, and 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 just writing from from a um, inquiring Christian point of view. And and I wrote these men. The the letters are published on Clifton's website on Israel Elect. They might be on Christagenia. I don't even remember. Um, I wrote Dave Barley, and I wrote Dave Barley a long letter. And he never answered me, but he answered my letter in his newsletter publication. And and this is probably 2004, 2005. He republished my letter in his newsletter publication as if he could answer it authoritatively. And he changed my name. He didn't even put my name in. He anonymized it to Mr. Smith or something. I don't remember. So that that triggered Clifton, and and I Clifton sent me his newsletter, and I read it, and I wrote Dave Barley a second time, and I he never answered me the second time either, and Clifton compiled all of that and published it on the Israel Elect website, and it's been there. It's not on Christagenia. It's something I've been wanting to post and never got around to doing, but it's still on Israel Elect. Um, it, it's, yeah, somebody would have to search for William Fink Dave Barley on the internet to find it. And I'm sure that the Israel elect site would come up. So I wrote these men from prison and they didn't answer me. And I, I was being kind and making inquiries. And, and I mean, I can't answer every letter that I receive either, but this is in, in these men were, were answering all sorts of mail for other people. And I know they were, and they had ministries where they had help answering mail and, and they couldn't answer me. So, I mean, even though I myself can't answer every letter I get, I really can't. It's, um, it, in, in matters that are, are really important in doctrine and a Christian prisoner that's studying, if they really, cared, I think they should have answered me. 
I, I really do. They should have sent me some kind of answer. Robert Balakias. Robert, I always liked Robert because he answered every letter I sent him, even if he only wrote a little short answer in the margin and returned it to me. And I always respected him for that. So that there's a, there's a huge difference with, with some of these people when they're challenged, how they respond. And Wyland and Barley and, and Jones, even though I was being um, civil with them, I was still challenging them, and they didn't respond at all. So now they're going to have to deal with me always talking about them and how bad they are and, and, <laughs> and pointing out the poisons in their doctrines when they had a chance to discuss them that they refused. Exactly. I know from experience, sitting at the tables with them, talking to them on the phone through the years, if they had your credit card or debit card on file, they'd answer any question you want because they knew yeah. you were getting getting something from every every month. There you have it. Okay, well, I'm not well, exaggerating, Michael. I'm thank sorry. you, Bill. Thank you. Thanks for being here. And, I said and thank um, I, I will play this on on the end of one of the Weissman programs that are upcoming. I don't know which one. I'll wait for a shorter one. I don't know how long this is going to be. Probably twenty, thirty minutes. I, I don't know, but it'll be it'll be on a on a Saturday upcoming that this will be a part of the program. Thank you. Thank you, Bill.